Okay, so everyone who has uh, decided to 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 um, honor us by by tuning in for this live recording of this week's podcast, thank you for doing so, and I welcome you. And um, this is a, uh, a, a what I think is going to be another interesting kind of a maneuvering through um, through the ecosystem around us, um, interspersed with that, you're going to be um, moving through what I call the ecosystem of my own mind that, you know, whether you like that or not, that comes with the territory of listening to, um, to these podcasts. So um, I hope that you'll all uh, take a moment to get yourself as deeply situated as you care to. And again, that means, um, you know, making the mood around you fit whatever, um, whatever works for you. So that could mean getting some nice um, essence in the air, whether it's just the outdoor essence or something like incense that you might want to burn um, or anything, you know, just uh, being near some, some flowers or something like that and uh, getting yourself comfortable, getting your mind just in a, a pretty, pretty much passive laid back state. And so um, I'm the guy that's going to kind of fill that up with um, hopefully some wonderment and um, so that's it. So please uh, sit back and, um, and, and enjoy. There's this place, a place where we dive and delve into the wonders of our surroundings, where the law is consilience, a jumping together of knowledge, forming a bridge that strongly connects the sciences, the arts, the humanities, a place where natural systems and human systems coexist in harmony where connections are sought between humans and nature, humans and humans, nature and nature. And yes, a place where land, the living layers of earth, is an equal member of the community with rights just like humans. In this special place, the sense of wonder is our sustenance. You've just arrived at the land health ecosystem. So this evening, we're gonna get into archeology, span okay? You don't need to be a professional archeologist to in fact be an archeologist. And I'm gonna share with you some musings that kind of occurred to me on a run out in nature where I found this little artifact that then got me thinking about doing a whole podcast inspired by this artifact. So I'm essentially titling tonight's podcast, uh, Ring Tabs and Other Modern Relics of Archaeology. And um, you know, to get into that realm, think about the connection between human refuse or garbage or trash and archaeology. And uh, also think like, where would archeologists be um, if, if humans were a lot cleaner than we are and if there wasn't as much trash left over over the, over the years? Um, you know, archeology span by its definition is the study of human activity through the recovery and analysis of material culture. So that's, that's what archeologists study to learn, you know, about, um, not just modern humans, but um, but his, but early humans, and um, you know, think about um, the uh, the idea of the excitement that gets um, um, 
carried out in, in the minds of archaeologists and others who study history when they come upon a Native American or, an, or a Native Indian mound. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're out in, in, in a kind of remote place, maybe it's, it's a forested area and you see this odd looking mound um, that, where you're like, wait a second, it doesn't look like nature put that there. It doesn't look like there's rocks um, that are un underlying it. it. It may well be an old mound that was, you know, that, that could be a couple thousand years old that early Americans just used to pile up their garbage. So landfills are not a modern invention. Landfills go back as early as, as, as any civilization um, looking to get rid of its refuse. Um, you know, waste is not a new concept. Managing waste is not new. Um, when, you, uh, when you go from not a lot of humans on the big wide planet to, um, to like 7.8 or so billion humans on our planet, then management of waste becomes more of an issue. But, uh, but waste um, is like treasure to people that study early civilizations. Um, I once had a really interesting experience in my, uh, in, I think this is in about 2007, I'm going to say, I was doing field work as an ecologist on the Fresh Kills landfill. And um, so while I was doing work on the landfill itself, the Fresh Kills landfill is no longer open to dumping. It's, it's, it's in the process of becoming a park in Staten Island. However, for a time, and maybe it still holds, the, the Fresh Kills landfill was the largest landfill, I think, in the entire world. Um, NASA astronauts who just were like up in space kind of orbiting the planet could look down and, and, and they could easily um, see the landform filled by the, the various huge mounds that, that comprise um, Fresh Kills landfill. Anybody who's ever driven through Staten Island, sometimes you, you, you don't mean to go there, but you know, on your way from New Jersey out to maybe Brooklyn, you might drive through Staten Island to catch the Verrazano Bridge, which can then take you into uh, Brooklyn, which technically is the start of um, Long Island. And then you can go into Brooklyn, Queens, or any, uh, any stop in, in Long Island. So a lot of times people just passing through would, would always would comment on the, uh, the stench. And what that was, was the large landfill of fresh kills. But back to my own experience, while my role at fresh kills was to analyze the vegetation that was growing upon the, uh, the mounds of, of fresh kills, I had occasion one time to be technically off the, 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 the legal site of, of the fresh kills landfill but like you might find in, in, in with other landfills, there's legal landfills and then there's illegal landfills. Um, dating back in history, you know, once there was once land be, ha, had a value, there was always a value put on um, getting rid of your garbage. And so, if you could dump waste without having to pay a fee for it, you know, that that was like you know, in a in a way, you know, saving money could be making money. So, right, I, I was I was hiking through some woods. And all of a sudden I came to these teens and I came to this huge pit and the pit must have been, it was taller than me. So it must've been, it could have been, um, I don't know, 10 feet deep. I, someday I need to see if I still have pictures on an old hard drive from, from when I was out there. But, uh, but it, the, uh, 
the ecologist and the explorer that I am, when I saw these, these teens and I saw this huge pit that they had dug, um, I could not help myself but to go into the pit myself. And it was really um, a time capsule. And so it was really interesting. They had excavated down many feet. And so on the walls of this pit, you basically saw layer upon layer of garbage. And I remember at the time, you know, like, the, like somewhat deep into this pit, you could find like remnants of early toasters and things like that. You know, what happens when, when people throw garbage in, in, into like a pit that they construct themselves or whether it goes into a, a municipal solid waste landfill, you know, it, for a while it stinks. But when, when, you know, once that gets closed up, the, uh, the organics relatively quickly, you know, get equalized there, or, you know, they get basically eaten by often anaerobic bacteria. And then what you're left with is the stuff that takes a really long time to break down. And so it could be really fascinating to see an exposed pit of, of garbage. And so I remember like thinking like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing. It's like literally looking at, you know, the history of New Yorkers um, and the deeper down you go, you know, the older the materials get. So, um, you know, quite an interesting experience. And, um, and basically it's like, it was like me performing citizen archeology. span So that's the way, you know, that, that's, that's along the lines of things that excite me. So let's fast forward to the present, you know, to about a few weeks ago. And I was taking a run on Forbidden Drive, which is the main pathway that runs along the Wissahickon Creek in Wissahickon Park. And if, uh, you know, maybe a mile and a half or so past the cover bridge, um, if, if anyone can picture where that is, um, I'm, I was running up, uphill on the path. And to the right of me, it was a, a flowing swale. Um, I happen to know, because I know this area really, really well, that, that the flowing swale is always flowing. It's, it's, it's on the side of the path. And if you didn't know any better, you just might think it was stormwater flowing downhill, like you often see happens, you know, for, for drainage reasons, you know, curbs and gutters and things like that run alongside paths or roadways. But it really was a, a diverted spring. So I'm running uphill, and in the midst of this spring water, I notice something that, that I know to be a pull ring tab. And so that's going to be the early part of, of my, my discussion here, um, which I'll talk about in a second. But if you, if you think of an early soda can or beer can, um, right now, if you, if you open up a can of soda or beer, you pop a tab. It's a pull tab, but, um, but you don't pull anything off into your hands unless the system is, is malfunctioning. You basically push down um, a, uh, like a tab that goes basically um, folds underneath the top part of the can and then you can safely drink your beer or your soda or whatever happens to be in there. Um, in the olden days, you used to pull a tab off of the can and be left with, this, with, with another item, um, hence this pull tab, ring tab or pull ring tab. So I, so, I, I, so I pass by, I don't do anything, I don't pick it up, I just, um, I've seen these things throughout my hiking all the time and I see the alum this aluminum ring tag you know, lying in the water. I go uphill and I get near to where my turnaround is and I start thinking to myself, I gotta go retrace my steps, I gotta find that thing. Because I know that that's being washed by a historic spring that's essentially an archeological site of its own. So on the way back, I ended up going and I picked the, uh, I, I actually um, you know, picked this tab out 
put it on my finger because sometimes um, I get lucky and they fit my uh, my finger and weird people like me will wear these ring tabs for, for a time. And, um, but let me further explain where I was. So I find this, this thing that I'm gonna tell you is actually now a new archeological relic called the ring tab. Um, but I found that the source of that water is a spring that comes out of the cliff um, like towards the top of the hill that I was running up. And in 1854, that spring was captured basically in the form of like a, a fountain. And it became the first public drinking fountain in the United States. And if you go to that site to this day, which really it's, it's not just a historic site, it's a piece of architecture. It's an archeological site. You'll see the, on the upper part of it, a sign that says pro bono publico. Um, I, by the way, don't excuse my Latin um, pronunciation. I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, but basically that means for the good of the public. And then towards the lower part of this thing, you see esto perpetua, okay? Um, and again, I'm sure my pronunciation is off, but basically that perpetual, right? So like that, like forever. And so, um, there's also a diagram that's featured on a little historic marker there that shows you that before there were these other blocks put into where it, there was an open area for drinking, um, that people would come and they would fill up their drinking containers and they would, you know, they, they would get free, fresh spring water there. And so, um, you know, it, it, you have this awesome, cool site. And guess what? And it did not like forever lasted just over a hundred years. In 1957, the park service or the, the Fairmount Park decided that they had to block up that, that, um, that fountain. So to this day, you can see the entire outline of the fountain. Um, all the masonry is intact. Um, and then you see these blocks that are flush with the, with the rest of the fountain. And, but you can't stop a spring from flowing. So what does it do? It flows through the rocks around it. It flows through the blocks themselves. It's one of my favorite sites in Philadelphia because all kinds of mosses um, and algaes are now like living in this relatively speaking clean water. And I say relative. Um, and not only that, there's these ancient plants called liverworts and that you can, that you can find there. Um, when you touch the water, it's always like about 52 degrees because groundwater basically flows at that, at that, at that temperature. Um, if you go there in the winter, you see some of the most beautiful icicles because the water still flows through the rocks. And then when the water hits the, uh, the surface air, then, then you know, whatever that temperature is, if it's below 32, then it forms ice. So you have this amazing urban ecosystem that still flows because of groundwater pollution the city decided it was safest to block it up, okay? Um, and uh, as if, you know, that would keep people from, from drinking the water. Um, and, uh, and that's what happened. So I started thinking how interesting that you have this artifact called a pull tab being cleaned because even though that water is too polluted to drink, it's way cleaner than what's flowing at the, downstream in the Wissahickon. And, um, and so I, I, I picked up my, um, my artifact thought about the fountain that, that used to be there. And then I decided, you know, I think that I got material for a podcast, you know, in a, in a few weeks. I further thought about it and it made me think, you know, let, let's, let's check out these ring tabs that I find a lot when I'm hiking. And then it also got me thinking about some of the other 
artifacts of, of archaeology that we're actually laying down to this very day. So when you think about that, we are constantly, constantly, constantly in the midst of modern artifacts. I was out just yesterday, I had the privilege, for the most part it was a privilege, of riding back from a teaching um, gig, and I was riding on that very same trail um, around five, six o'clock, uh, actually, what am I saying, maybe closer to seven o'clock last night, in the midst of a gushing rainstorm. And, all, and, and when I got, if anybody has seen the Wissahickon in the, in the summer, you know that it's like the Jersey Shore, except it's in, in, in uh, you know, Northwest Philadelphia. And you have people swimming all throughout the Wissahickon Creek. You have them doing cookouts, bringing music there. Um, basically, it becomes this festive happening spot. And I'm talking about all throughout. And um, you know, here I'm driving upstream because I'm on my way home along Forbidden Drive, the rain is pouring down and all around me are artifacts, AKA shiny hers potato chip bags, um, you know, gloves, uh, bottles, cans, paper, Starburst wrappers, you name it. And you know, the, the um, artifacts were all around left by the people that go swimming in the Wissahickon and don't have the mind to you know, clean up after themselves. And then the stormwater, you know, that was produced by the, the, uh, the crazy thunderstorm that we had at the time was washing all of that downhill, uh, much of it going into the creek. But, um, you know, just like yesterday, if you only look around you, you are surrounded by artifacts. And, um, you know, so, you know, the, one of the themes of this, uh, of, of, of tonight's podcast is, you know, check out your artifacts around you and think about, you know, what's, what's going on there. Um, so that, that brings me to like the, the, the star feature of, of, of my artifacts to be followed by four others, this thing called the, uh, called, called the, the, the pull ring tab. Okay, so you've all seen these in some form. If you're older, if you're like middle-aged like I am or older, um, you remember these either fondly or not so fondly um, dating in the, from the mid 60s to the mid 70s if you had a can of Coke, um, you basically, you know, got your fingernail in, in, in between the ring and the top of the can, you pulled back that thing, you heard a, psh, you know, that sound of your beer opening or your Pepsi opening or your Uncola 7-Up opening, whatever, whatever it was you were drinking. And, um, and then you, you, you know, you had to discard that, that, um, that pull tab. So, um, so the things that are left all around really only had about a 10 year um, use, okay, or, 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 or manufacturing period. So here's a little bit of history before I bring it up to the semi-present of these ring tabs. Um, in around 1909, um, there, the idea was sprung to have beer in cans, okay? Um, but then prohibition came along. So beer in cans kind of sat for a few decades while pro prohibition was the law. Sometime around 1935, the Kruger Cream Ale Company, which is based in Richmond, Virginia, started producing can, um, cans of beer. They were 12 ounces, and to this day, that's, a, that's the, the popular um, you know, size for, a, for, for soda and beers, 12 ounce cans. On the side of the can, there was a little um, description on 
how to use a church key opener to open up your your um your can. So if you if you think of that triangle opener, you know, can opener kind of a thing, when when beer was put in cans, the first time that 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 uh you know that that was that 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 um they started to be used, you needed to have a can opener of sorts to to get it open. So that so that gave way to some other inventions over the next um, couple of decades. And then in, in the early 60s, um, around 1962, Schlitz Beer Company came up with a snap top. And then there was something called a U-Tab that was invented by the Continental Can Company. But then in 1965, you had this invention, and I can't find exactly who gets credited. I don't know if there's a patent for it, but it was the first ring pull tab. Okay, so that establishes a date 1975, I'm sorry, 1965, that you started having these, these tabs that you would pull off of your can and then you'd have to do something with them. Um, the, their life was relatively short because they were considered dangerous. There were several incidents where people ended up swallowing these things. Um, they definitely were sharp. Um, the, uh, you know, you'd have some sharpness to the whole, the, the opening that was left in the can and the tabs themselves um, could could definitely you know ca cause a cut. So um, you know so it wasn't that long later uh, until later that um, something called the stay tab was invented, and that's around 1975. And and it and uh, historic um, use at least that I can trace from my just basic internet searching was that the Fall City Beer Company was the first to use a stay tab, and to this day different versions of the stay tab. Are, are how we open our, our our cans of soda and beer and whatever else is in is in a is in a can holding liquid. Um, so that's that's the history of these things. So back to like you know the wonder of of all of this. You know what's really cool is you can find these things. You know I've I've been finding them. You know whenever I go hiking and I'm not looking for these things. I'm I'm just hiking and looking at the the plants and the flowers and the birds and things. And um, or just enjoying my time in the woods, or I'm or, or I'm also maybe looking for rocks because I, I love uh, you know I love finding cool rocks. But you know th throughout the urban forests of Philadelphia, um, whether you're looking or not, you can't help but but occasionally find one of these one of these ring tabs. Um, and you know so it's it's kind of cool that you can find these historic relics that you know date back basically. Um, you know, to some time between 1965 and 1975. Think about that for a second. If someone said, go out and find historic remnants, you know, on the surface, you know, you're not going to some place where you're going to dig. How many things come to mind that, that might have been around since the 60s? Um, there are places where you can go and you can find old bottles and old cans. So they, they um, you know, if you know where to look, um, you know, in, in some under-traveled areas, you know, the, the more you look in forests, you will find that there's a lot of cans and, um, and, uh, and, and bottles, many of which are older than, you know, 40 or 50 years. You can find them if, if, you, if, you, if you dig around lightly through the leaf litter, and a lot of times you can find them on the surface. But there's really not a whole lot of uh, other things that you can find um, like that. But, um, but the thing about these ring tabs is there this really neat connection to the past. And so um, I started to look them up and just find out like, you know, are other people noticing these things? Like, you know, has anything been written about them? And, um, and, and, and what I found is that finding these ring tabs is really, really, really 
Um, it's, it's true um, archaeology. And uh, I'm going to read an article in a minute or two that, that kind of like, you know, bears that out. Um, also, there's, there's, there, it's not a lot of people, but there, there, there are archaeologists that take an interest. There are other people that, that, that find this stuff fascinating. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting um, website that I found. So, so I'm not the only one that's noticing these, um, these ring taps. So I was looking around online. Um, one, you know, I, I, you can find this handy little uh, um, top of a, of a can identifier, um, courtesy of this guy who I'm, who's going to be quoted in this article um, named William D. Schroeder, who's a, uh, a, um, an archaeologist who, who lives and practices out in Washington. And he created this thing called the beverage can key card. And um, you, know, you, can, you can find this thing online. It's, it's pretty cool. And it kind of just shows you that evolution that I just shared with you about you know, how, um, how the top of cans have, um, have evolved over the years. But there's also this really cool thing that I, that I believe was from, it's, it's, uh, its reference is by William Rathje, or Rathje, however you pronounce it, who wrote an article called Once in Future Landfills in National Geographic magazine dated May 1991. And I assume that this was part of the article from the, uh, from the National Geographic. And in it was the Pop Top Field Guide. And, and subtitled below, below that was fun stuff to see what type of can these tabs come from. And, um, and it says, there's a little note about it saying, like ancient arrowheads, these pull tabs from Arizona landfills, which is where they were found, convey information to archeologists. Distinctive designs identify which canned beverages the tabs opened. Tab quantities indicate the popularity of each beverage and the brief time in which each tab design was manufactured helps date the samples. And, um, and it's just interesting that for, you know, for just 40 months or so, um, some, of these, uh, you know, some of these tops have been, you know, were in use. So I'm just gonna read to you, like you can find this thing online, but, um, but not like you might think that these ring tabs are all the same. And, and if you look at this diagram, you find that if, if you know what you're looking at, um, the National Geographic article shows you what a ring tab looks like from the following beers and other beverages. They, they have Budweiser, Olympia Gold, Michelob, Old Milwaukee, Miller, Pabst Blue Ribbon, Coca-Cola, Nutriment, Ocean Spray, Cranapple Drink, Coors, Schlitz Light, Carling Black Label, Gatorade, Borden Yogurt Shake, and Kern's Fruit Nectars. So go figure. Um, you can find a Pop Top Field Guide um, when you find your little specimen, you know, next time you're out hiking and you bring it home to see what, what you have. But, um, but again, um, it's really, really cool that we can find these things. The nature of what they're made of. So if you hold up, if you find one of these things, don't cut yourself. Um, if you if you do the kooky thing that my wife thinks is very kooky when I come home, she knows what these things are um, because she'll be like, why are you wearing an old soda ring on your finger? Okay. Um, um, and what I don't tell her is, you know, just like it's dating me, the fact that she knows about it means that she must be middle-aged as well um, because a lot of younger people might not even know what these things are. But, um, you know, but they're, they're, they're a connection with our ancestors from, you know, 40 and 50 years ago. Um, but uh, here's, here's the deal. Listen to this article that actually says that these are not just mundane things that you're finding. 
um, they're, they're, they're actually considered archeological artifacts. So I found this really cool article um, from, from uh, 2015 and apparently it was updated in 2017. And um, it was, uh, in, it, it's on a, I found it on the website, westerndigs.org. And um, I'm gonna read it to you. It was uh, by Blake DePastino. Um, here's the title. At 50, ring tab beer cans are now officially historic artifacts. A simple relic of 20th century life has taken on new meaning for archeologists. The ring tab beer can, first introduced 50 years ago, is now considered an historic era artifact, a designation that bestows new significance on the old aluminum cans and their distinctive tabs that are still found across the country. Here's a quote. Once an artifact attains the 50 year threshold, it is eligible to be recorded as an archeological site or an isolated find in most states said William Schroeder, an archeologist an archaeologist with the firm Reese Landro Research in Yakima, Washington. This means that even beverage can pull tabs are el eligible for protection under state and federal laws. Schroeder discovered that this year marked the golden anniversary of the aluminum ring tag while investigating a modern midden of beverage cans in Washington state. I was tasked with a small survey near Clay Alum Dam in central Washington, he said. I encountered a small refuse scatter. It was full of beverage cans and bottles, some plastic oil quartz, etc. The cans were vintage, but I had no way to know for certain in the field whether or not the cans were historic, that is 50 years old or older. Eventually, he was able to discern labels on some of the cans that dated them to 1968, not quite at the half century threshold but the project still pointed out the need for a resource that archeologists could use to date cans and their leftover tabs, which tend to be found more often than cans themselves, and in turn help determine the historic value of sites where they're found. Many folks have something of a fascination or passion for old beer cans, yet few had any knowledge that there were different kinds of openings, that there was a, a way to tell the age based on the opening style, Schroeder said. After doing some research, he was able to find a comprehensive history of the American beer can published by the Society for Historical Archaeology in 2009, and then tracked down photographs of most of the known styles of tabs. Schroeder then put this information together in a key card for archaeologists to use in the field. Along the way, he found that, although other iterations of the pull tab were briefly used, the best known version had reached an important milestone. Ring tabs came into existence in 1965, and meet the minimum age threshold now, Schroeder said. There's an exclamation point, so you know the guy's psyched about that. They were typically teardrop in shape with some having rounded distal margins, others squarish. The big difference being the ring top. The early models had solid aluminum tabs, no hole, no ring. That distinguishes them right away. The ring tab design began to be phased out in 1975 after injuries were caused by people swallowing the metal tabs. It was replaced with a new modification called the stay tab, which used a flange of aluminum on the lid as a lever to press down on the sealed opening, a design that's still in use today. These small changes in design can make a big difference, Schroeder noted, because the ring tab's new status means it can be used to identify sites that may have historic value. If pull tabs are dismissed, it won't be the end of the world, he said but it's our job to stop and consider these as artifacts and decide how to proceed. 
As an example, Schroeder cited a site that a colleague has been investigating in Washington, a campground that became one of the first major meeting places for the gay and lesbian community in the Northwest in the 1970s. The site may well be eligible to the National Register of Historic Places as a traditional cultural property, Schroeder said. Yet all that remains are camp pads, fire rings, and pull tabs. So theoretically, the pull tabs may be the only way to place a temporal frame around the site as none of the features will reveal specific enough age or date range. This is useful, he says. Schroeder st stresses that the mere presence of 50-year-old ring tabs does not automatically endow a site with protected status. And in some states, the age threshold for historic significance can range from 45 to 75 years. But the 50th anniversary of the ring tab is just the latest reminder that once forgotten bits of material culture are constantly taking on new meaning as they age, a process that archeologists need to heed. Some folks were disgusted with the thought of having to record an archeological site of pull tabs. Others are excited at the opportunity, Schroeder said. Some find the artifact so mundane that it is not worthy of recordation, but they'd stop to record a hole in a in top can. It's a phase shift. People need to begin to recognize the artifacts, have a reliable reference, and actually take the time to figure out whether or not the artifacts are a cultural resource, he says. It's going to take time until pull tabs become recognized to the extent that field personnel will know, hey, this is a site, just like they would if they found three pieces of crypto-crystalline silicate debitage, which um, are bits of stone used for making tools, on the surface, Schroeder added. I look forward to that day. So that's the end of that really funky article. Um, you should also know, if you get interested, that there's a site called pulltabarchaeology.com, and there's this funky guy um, in uh, Scandinavia, um, or maybe, maybe it was Holland, that has created this whole YouTube channel and this and this website, and he asks people to um, 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 he asks people to actually check in with him, send stuff. You can get stuff sent there, and and it's and it's a really really cool thing. So you know, feel free to check that out. Um, you know, the again, the idea of this thing is that in our woods we can we can find this stuff. Um, by the way. You know, there's the question of where does this stuff go? Aluminum hangs around in the soil for a while. It's another reason, um, and uh, you know why um, why it's pretty neat to um, you know to to look for this stuff and the ties to our past. Um, so it's uh, you know I, I urge you to 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 start you know um, checking your surroundings out, um, you know, and uh, and and see what you find. Um, Aluminum, by the way, if it does make its way into the ocean, um, I one site indicated that it takes about 80 years for it to break down in the ocean. I really believe that the way it acts in soil, it can get preserved there for quite a long time. So I got into thinking, you know, how cool this is. But then I got into thinking, like, what are these other artifacts around us? And I just wanted to spend, you know, a few minutes on three other artifacts that I've really taken note of. Um, I'm not really that fond of any of them, but um, but there's a lot of questions in there, like you know, like wh what do they say about us and that kind of thing. So the first of them of these artifacts that you can find if you just go hiking through the urban ecosystems of Philadelphia and surrounding areas 
are condoms and condom wrappers. And by the way, I view these things as the, as the way a, um, a soil scientist or a geologist might. These, these are actually considered you know, particles amongst what the, the particles that you find in the soil, um, kind of like existing near the top of the urban um, soil profile. So, um, you know, like that's, that's what's going on here. Um, and, uh, you know, my question is what's going on, okay? When, when I was a young lad and in my uh, late teens, you know, condoms had this kind of like really big coming of age, I guess, significance. Um, I remember the first time I had to go to a uh, drugstore because back when I was young, um, they were behind the counter. You couldn't just like you know, take them off um, of the shelves like I guess you can now. Um, I could hardly get the word out of my mouth when I tried to um, you know, purchase one of these in the front of a uh, drugstore wherever I happen to be. But if you look around today, you just can't help but find used condoms like all throughout the urban environment, let alone the wrappers. And um, you know, I don't, I th I, you know, as, as a, uh, as an urban ecologist, I'm always thinking about like, you know, where does this stuff come from? Kind of know where it comes from, but like, you know, hey, why the need to share? You know, what, what, you know, what, why not just do what you're kind of supposed to do and, and, um, and dispose of that on your own? Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's, you know, today, like what's with the proliferation, you know, 10 years ago, I do not at all remember finding these things as much as I do now. And, um, you know, so what you have is you have two different forms of refuse um, you know, out of two different kinds of materials. So what I did was you know, I wanted to find, you know, think besides thinking like, hey, what's going on here and why would somebody feel, and, you know, entitled or privileged or maybe thrilled, I don't know what, um, to toss that thing, you know, out, um, you know, rather than disposing of it. Um, the condom itself, for the most part, most condoms are made out of latex. And um, if something says it's a latex condom, it's most likely made of natural latex rubber, and, but it's also gonna be mixed with other chemicals. So, you know, what is latex? Latex can come from like any number of, of plants, about 10% of flowering plants um, have, have this material in it, which basically, it's actually like a complex substance. It's, a, it's a, an emulsion of proteins, alkaloids, starches, sugars, oils, tannins, resins, and gums, and when they're exposed to air, they kind of coagulate. And it's kind of a cool thing. You know, I've actually like, you know, if you have, if you have a rubber plant at home or if, you've, if you know what a rubber plant is like, if you slowly pull apart the leaf, you can see where, you know, where rubber might come from. Um, you, you get these little stringy things that, um, you know, that, that is really that, that latex emulsion that I just described. It has a really cool use. It, it, it usually deals with um, injury to the plant tissue um, it also could be like a defense against insects that want to come and, um, and, and munch on the leaves. So, so condom, condoms are usually made of latex, um, but there are, you know, there, there's some people have allergies to, to, to latex. Um, and and uh, by the way, this liquid latex um, is mixed with chemical additives, which is then made into a paste. Um, um, and, and then uh, they call this whole process compounding. And once they get this, um, this paste of uh, liquid latex and these other chemicals, um, they, uh, they store it for about seven days. And then the vulcanization that takes place strengthens the bonds. And then they, it's onto the condom forming machine. And that's how they make the condoms that, uh, you know, that we're talking about now. 
um, if, they're, if they're the latex models. Um, polyurethane, polyisoprene, as well as lamb intestine are, are also used to make condoms. Um, by the way, latex, even though it's a, a mostly, well, latex itself is a natural substance, um, but in this form, again, the, 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 the limited research I did suggests that it breaks down slowly. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so that's what you have here. And, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about some other plastic things that make it into the water. Um, but, uh, you know, like, you know, th there is the, like, fish and other animals mistake things that look like something that they think is food. And, you know, some condom making its way down the Schuylkill River, um, it would not, it would not at all be unusual for a fish to ingest that, thinking that it might be some squiggly worm kind of a thing, um, or a bird, you know, or some other, or some other, you know, marine animal that happens to be in there, like a, you know, turtle swimming in the, uh, in the water. So, um, you know, compared to some other plastics that get into the, uh, the, the um, or or other materials that get into the to the waterways, um, not I haven't seen any studies yet on, you know, whether any major impact. More on that a little later. Now, this thing called the condom wrapper. So the condom wrapper, you know, I kind of didn't realize when, when you see shiny um, wrappers on the ground, um, for the most part, like I, I, my, my mind it used to still think like, hey, is, it must be like, you know, aluminum. There must be some kind of metal in there. And for the most part, um, condom wrappers and other things are made out of um, uh, basically foil, but, but it's plastic foil. And so there's this real thin plastic foil plus coating, and that's what generally serves as the um, condom wrapper. Um, I found a healthy, uh, a, healthy a, a, a helpful site called condomjungle.com, and they have this really snazzy photo of all these different condom wrappers. Now, I, put, I, I went from being a human to making believe I was a fish or a sea turtle, and I'm looking at these, at these you, know, you know, I'm seeing every color under the spectrum of colors, um, and Lots of these condom wrappers, they're pretty shiny. And if you've ever been out, you know, you, you have to have set foot, you know, right within, you know, feet of these things. Um, sometimes they're really snazzy looking, you know, and sometimes they really catch the light of the sun. They're shiny. Now, what's a fishing lure? A fishing lure is a shiny thing. A lot of times the fishing lure is made out of some kind of plastic material. Um, sometimes it's metal. Um, it has some movement about it in the water and, and it's and it's meant to lure the fish, right? So it's not a lot, you know, you can use live bait, but you know, most people will tell you who are fisher people that, you know, they, they, they go for lures that mimic frogs, that mimic worms, etc. So, um, you know, so when you, when you see these with the, these condom wrappers and you know that the next rainstorm is going to wash a slew of them into the, in, into the rivers, um, you gotta, you, you gotta assume that some of them are no different from, you know, having the impact that a fishing lure would have on a fish, um, let alone, you know, some, some other animal that sees this shiny thing in, in the water. Um, if you also look at the way they're, they're shaped and they're made, they're, um, there, there's some similarities to that ring tab and that they're relatively um, thin. They're pretty strong. Some of them can be pretty strong and, and not, like not sharpness. Maybe they could, they could give you a light paper cut but they, 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 they also have some of, the, some of the makeup where it might hang around in the soil profile for a while. If it gets kind of like buried a little bit, you could see that it's not the first thing that's going to wash down a hill 
into the water compared to like a plastic bag or something. Um, but, but, you know, rest assured, a lot of these things end up becoming, you know, um, waterborne and they make their way, you know, again, what we're going to talk about in, into the, in, into the, into the water. And so gravity is the great force around us. And so gravity is what gravity is going to do. It's going to make sure that anything, any refuse that we leave on the surface of the land, um, if we don't pick it up, it's most likely going to wash its way down into a waterway. And then once it makes it into, you, know, you name your favorite creek, that's, that creek's going to go into the Schuylkill, where it's going to go directly into the Delaware. Schuylkill goes into the Delaware. Delaware is going to turn into the Delaware Bay, and that's going to turn into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, we'll talk a little bit towards the end of, 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 my, of my discussion that, um, that there are these great gyres of plastic. Um, they're, in, uh, they're in the Pacific and they're in the Atlantic. Um, there's, there's at least one in the Pacific that's, that's the equivalent of the size of Texas. And a lot of what, what, what's in there um, is, is, is plastic materials. Commercial fishing line, which could be the topic unto itself, is one of the big um, culprits. But bottles and other plastic materials follow currents and they end up swirling around on these islands that you couldn't walk on, but you could certainly see them if you're flying a uh, seaplane over the area. So big problem. Now I'm going to turn to another artifact that's, that I'm seeing more and more around me. And this is the one that I'm going to purposely use a pun. Um, it's my pet peeve because my pet peeve are dog do bags that you know, these plastic bags with dog do in them that people then don't put in the trash can, but they put them on the side of the path. Um, like I try in my travels to exercise empathy, you know, to the nth degree. Um, I can empathize to some degree why somebody might want to toss that condom out the window and not, you know, bring it back to a trash can, not bring it home, whatever. Um, I'm not condoning it, but I can, I can sort of, you know, the psychology of, you know, depending on where you are, you know, maybe not thinking to take, take your condom wrapper and stick it in your pocket or something, or take that condom and wrap it in a tissue. Look, you know, my empathy says I don't, I'm not agreeing with it, but I, I can see it. But let's ponder these, these, these crazy phenomena known as like dog do bags. Um, did you ever see these things? I mean, they, they come in all shapes. I'm, I'm sorry, they come in all colors. Um, you can buy designer dog do bags. Some friend of ours gave us these dog do bags and they're the coolest things. I don't even, I want to use them as gift bags. I don't want to put my dog's poop in there. They're like, they're black and white checkers checkerboard um, print, I'm thinking like, wow, somebody really went to town to design these, these bags to get one use. You pick up dog do and then you toss them out. Certainly not a sustainable thing in, in and of themselves. But what could these perpetrators who take the time to do this be thinking? I, you know, I, I try to, I, I, I run, I walk, I hike, I bike. I see this stuff everywhere and, and it just blows my mind. Um, so, I mean, think about the thought process here. You know, you buy some of these bags, right? Um, and you might even go and buy these designer bags, right? They're not all like black colored. You, you, they can be any color in the sun, under the sun. So then you're, you're walking your dog, your dog poops, you stop, okay? You let your dog do his, his or her thing. And like so far, like a good citizen, you take out your bag, you put your hand in it, you kind of turn it inside out, that kind of thing. You bend down, you pick up the poop, you tie up the bag. 
so far, like all good. I get it. I do it. You know, I, I, I have, I have them, they can fit on your keychain. They can fit on your dog leash. You know, there's all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of things that accommodate us picking up our, our pet waste with um, something that's not great to do, you know, it, you know, with, you know, one use plastic bag, but you know, you know, it is a way to get rid of your, your dog waste. Um, you know, it, it's somewhat simplistic. Okay. But then you do that and you place the dog do bag with dog do in it on the pathway that you're walking on. Or maybe you put it on the ground or maybe you put it on the armrest of a public bench in the park. Maybe you put it on top of a fence post that's, that happens to be, you know, alongside of the path that you're walking on. Maybe you put it at the bottom of the fence post. By the way, I'm not making this stuff up. This is what I pass by on a regular basis. Sometimes I see these dog do bags with dog do in them and, and, and people put them next to the trash can. My empathy says maybe, okay, maybe there's some kind of thinking that's going on there. They're not putting it in the trash can, but I still have to say like, you know, what is the mental process going on? And, 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 you know, when this happens, like, do people think that the city with all its lack of funds that can't, that right now, if you notice, like trash pickup is way behind, the city can't pick up its own municipal solid waste. Do they think that there's some special paid employee whose job it is to look for those dog do bags and put them in a, in a special dog do bag receptacle with dog doing it? I don't like, maybe they think that, that somebody comes around and, and, you know, picks these cheerfully colored bags up and, and, and puts them somewhere else, you know, kind of like recycling. Um, maybe somebody thinks it's kind of like a public relay and it's a way to connect with people. Um, I'm going to pick my dog's poop up. I'm going to leave a bag here. Someone else is going to come who's walking his or her dog, pick that up, toss that. I'm going to go and maybe do these people then pick somebody else's dog do bags up. I got to tell you, I don't pick people's other dog do bags up and, and, and throw them out. But maybe there's some relay going on that I'm not 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 aware of. Um, but uh, you know, I just don't know for the life of me, you know, what's what's going on. What I do know, though, is it doesn't take that much research. You can just use your your own logic. Um, what's the ultimate outcome of doing this? Even if you compare it to just, even though it's not a nice thing to do, letting your dog poop and leaving the poop there. Okay, um, what happens? It rains like yesterday, it poured. Um, that bag with the poop, it's not that heavy, all right? And it kind of, it takes up a lot of like space, right? It's not flat and flush like a condom wrapper. It's certainly not flat and flush like a um, pull tab. It's there for the taking by the rain, okay? Um, the rain picks it up, it carries it downhill, gravity helps it out, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's gonna make its way towards the, towards the closest stream. You know, these bags are not the strongest thing in the world, so that it might rip open on the way down, or it might rip open, at some point it's gonna rip open because these plastic bags, they're not, they're not very strong. So that, that poop, um, what's it gonna do? It's, it's gonna get into the waterways, okay? Um, is it gonna do harm? To some degree, yeah. Um, some, of, some of that poop might have, have bacteria in it that could be harmful, so then it, then it could cause some issues. Um, if, you, if you're, in, if you're uh, anywhere on any of the urban creeks of the city, you know that um, people are, to, you know, right now I'm sure if we went out and went to Devil's Pool in the Wissahickon or any number of places, there's a lot of people swimming um, in, in the creek. So, um, you know, so having a little extra poop floating around is not gonna be doing those people any good. Um, the algae is gonna like it. Algae love the uh, nitrogen and phosphorus that are in uh, basically fertilizer that, that comes from, from waste. 
Um, but in the overall scheme of things, I don't know that dog dew in the water is going to, you know, is, is a major thing. Um, but it might, but it definitely has some impact. But um, flip it over to that bag. So that, what's that bag going to do? Well, the bag's going to travel far. You know, right now I'm jealous of that bag because with COVID, it's, it's hard to travel like that bag's going to do. That bag's going to get into the creek. It's going to make it to the river. It's going to get into the bay. It's going to go into the ocean. And it's probably going to go far um, to that gyre of plastic island that I talked about somewhere, okay? Um, it could really go far. So that's what's going to happen. If it makes it there, it's going to then swirl around. It's going to become this thing that we're just getting to, familiar with called microplastics, okay? Um, microplastics, they get in the water. Um, they're tiny little particles, um, usually less than five millimeters in, in diameter. Um, they fish eat them. They climb up the food chain. Humans, as humans, we have them now in our feces. If we take stool samples, we have them in our blood. Um, they're getting into the water supply. Um, plastic breaks down, okay? So microplastics are a huge issue. How big of a problem they are, um, we're, that's what we're going to be learning over the next decade or so. So that's, that's, that's if the bag makes it to the gyre or somewhere where it can swirl around, you know, in harmony with all these other plastic garbage. Or worse, a sea turtle, a fish, a bird ingests, okay? Um, you ever, you, the, the issues of, of balloons, mylar balloons, and other kind of, um, um, you know, rubber balloons and plastic balloons, hundreds of thousands of marine animals die as a result of, of ingesting these things. So a plastic bag in the water, like a designer bag that catches the eye of some sea turtle, it would not be unusual for a sea turtle to, to think that's food, ingest it, and some of these rescue marine um, animal rescue places, like the one in Brigantine, have found sea turtles that, that, that have apparently ingested a bag, a balloon, where they found one part of that bag still in the mouth of the turtle, and they found the other end of that bag or that balloon in the anus of that turtle, meaning that that turtle literally um, tried to ingest that whole thing and basically ended up just kind of like, you know, messing up its, 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 its um, internal system or suffocating and, um, and, 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 that, and, and had that sad demise. Um, again, light plus color plus movement equals a lure. That's what a fishing lure is. And so there's no, there's, you know, there's no, um, you know, there's, there's no difference between um, a fishing lure and a larger, you know, lure that, that's inadvertent, like a, like a shopping bag or something, um, you know, or the bag that, that holds your dog's poop. So I need to diverge, you know, before um, my final little uh, latest artifact. And that is, um, you know, I want to, if you've, if you've ever watched the movie, The Graduate, it has that earth-shattering famous scene and um, about plastics. Um, Mr. McGuire at this party says, I want to say one word to you, just one word. Benjamin Braddock, played by a young Dustin Hoffman, says, yes, sir. Mr. McGuire says, are you listening? Benjamin says, yes, I am. Mr. McGuire says, plastics. Ben says, just how do you mean, sir? Seem kind of like, you know, and ends from there. And so like people to this day, you know, love quoting that scene. And that scene is like one of probably one of the most famous Hollywood scenes ever. 
but I found, I found some discussion about it online. And um, there's a guy on, on who was like blogging on this uh, website, Quora.com, um, to give him credit, his name was George Macrower. And he said that, that that scene from the movie, cause I wasn't ever positive exactly. Like I thought, I thought the guy was giving him, I saw that movie ages ago. I thought, I thought the guy was giving him advice um, the graduate uh, uh, that, uh, that um, Dustin Hoffman was playing, that plastics might be the next thing to go into. But um, George McCrower says this was not a compliment. Plastics back then in the late 60s were, that was considered cheap, artificial, short-lived, inferior, very negative. Um, he, according to George McCrower, he says that um, in that movie scene, it was the first national disparagement ridiculing plastics in the public eye. Um, there was, uh, but at the time there wasn't really any adverse environmental critique. It was just that, um, plastics was considered negatively in the late sixties. Um, you know, uh, you know, um, so, um, you know, no, back then no one would ever remotely think that there was anything positive about plastic or its future. So again, that's whether that is the, the fact or not. I thought it was really interesting because if you look at where we are with plastics right now and you go back to that scene, you know, you know, like just kind of just connect 1967 when that movie came out with 2020. And here we are, you know, and, and think about that if somebody said to you plastics. And the thing is, if somebody is graduating college right now and somebody says to that person plastics, I'm going to say that is a really good piece of advice because we don't know what the hell to do with plastics. Um, we only recycle 20% of the plastics that are out there, which means the rest of them either go to landfills or get incinerated, or again, end up in those gyres of garbage in, in the ocean. So what are we gonna do about microplastics? What are we gonna do about, about all that? There's a whole set of businesses around that. So that's, that's my, my little diatribe on, on, that, on that dog do bag taking me into the world of plastics. The last um, thing I wanted to briefly mention is What's our newest artifact? To me, it's masks. There's a big variety of masks now that I notice people wearing both on their faces and then I'm more and more I'm noticing them on the ground. You know, in addition to the, the typical surgical masks that you see, masks are just as colorful as those dog do bags. I've seen beautiful woven masks that people are wearing. They're flat out gorgeous. I, I saw fruit images on one in Atlanta in, in wherever I was, Ventnor Atlantic City on the boardwalk this weekend. Um, I, I thought, wow, that's a really cool print um, that that person has. You, um, companies now with, are, are advertising their, their, you know, their logos on these masks. So fashion statements are, are, um, are, are, are being you know, printed on these masks. Um, but um, my early observation is that when these masks hit the ground for whatever reason, because again, I wonder like, how do they fall off? And do you not know that your mask just fell off? Um, I think that nobody wants to touch these things, right? Um, they're, you know, they're thinking, uh-oh, don't want to get COVID. M maybe that's what they're thinking. But I don't, you know, I'm seeing masks everywhere, all over the place, on the ground, all different colors, mostly the surgical variety in light blue. Now, that's going on. It's the, it, I think it's the latest artifacts. I'm seeing gloves as well, but I'm seeing these masks all over the place. Um, so I'm sure you were wondering, what are these surgical masks made out of? Um, the most common material is polypropylene. Um, they're also, they also can be made of polystyrene, polycarbonate, and polyester. So as soft and everything as those things are, they're plastic yet again. If they're 20 grams per square meter in density, 
Um, they're made in, a, in something called a spun-bound process, which um, involves extruding melted plastic made into like a web. If they're 25 grams um, per square meter in density, there's something called the melt-blown technology, where plastic um, is extruded through a die with hundreds of small nozzles and blown by hot air to become, get this, tiny fibers. These tiny fibers then are cooled, and then this thing is layered in three or four layers, and that's what your mask is. But um, back to those tiny fibers, they're less than one micron. Look up a micron. It's wicked, wicked, wicked small. So basically, it, I'm, I'm learning that these surgical masks are made up of tiny, they're, they're basically made up of fused microplastics. So again, I don't need to go back through. What's going to happen when those masks wash down into the Wissahickon or the, uh, depending on where you're listening, into the Pekessing or into the Frankfurt Creek or, you know, or the Penny Pack and make their way into the, into the Delaware River? Again, you guessed it microplastics. So, so that's, you know, that's what's going on here. So, so that's, that's what I kind of wanted to like have everyone think about and like, you know, to, to sum up, you know, the ideas that, that I'm, you know, that, that, that I just kind of you know, explored, you know, from the pull tab that then again, my weird ecosystem um, of a mind, you know, took me to condoms, their wrappers, um, and then, and then plastic bags holding dog waste, and then, and then these masks. Um, but you know, like, let's back up from that and, and end with kind of a thought. The wonder of it all, okay? These podcasts are about the wonder that's out in our environment anyway. And wonder is not necessarily, don't, to me, view it as us using our senses, okay? And really like kind of remarking at the world around us. So. You know, the word wonderful kind of con connotes something good, but you know, I'm, I think that dog do bags that don't get put in, that, that get picked up and left somewhere and not in the trash. To me, I have a whole sense of wonder about that, okay? Um, my urging to you is to think about, you know, use your empathy, you know, don't necessarily go and judge what's going on, think about it. What's going on when you find these artifacts around? Also, you might start wanting to collect some of them. Um, you know, they, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a link of, um, to, um, you know, to, 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 our, to our human um, colleagues and stuff that, that, that are around. You know, take it in, become a citizen archeologist, become a citizen ecologist. Um, it's, you know, what, you know, what do you, you know, what do you make of this stuff? Um, I urge you to kind of like, just again, take it in. I'm not a big fan of cleanups. Um, it's a nice thing for people to do, but I think if we clean somebody's waste up, it's basically telling them you can keep littering. But I do urge you at a minimum to kind of like, you know, think about the wonder of it all. So with that and with these images in mind, um, you know, next time you, you, you explore, um, check out and see how, much, how many of these artifacts or others you might find. Um, until, until then, um, I, I eagerly await next week I got a slew of topics, so I'm not going to tell you which it's going to be, um, but, uh, but I can assure you it's going to be a good urban ecological exploration, and I hope you enjoyed this one. Um, thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to um, interacting with all of you a week from tonight. Good night.